Good morning. It's a beautiful day today. Very odd February. Taking my wife to work yesterday. It was 64 degrees in Manchester. That is very nice in the middle of February, but it seems somewhat apocalyptic, and I'm, I'm, I'm waiting for just something horrible to happen when that happens, you know, like dinosaurs or something. Existential dread, yes. But, you know, I often think driving up here, well, there's a couple things I think. But one of the things I think is I have, like, the best commute in the world because driving up here and you know, looking at Mount Tecumseh and Welch and Dickey, and I love mountains. And uh, it just I always love that. The traffic... Drivers originating from certain states, meh, less less enjoyable. But I love looking at the mountains. We're gonna be we're gonna be talking about mountains a lot today. So we're gonna be looking at three sections of scripture. We're gonna be looking at Mark chapter nine, Exodus thirty-three, and First Kings nineteen. Now, we've been, we've been following readings from what's known as the Common Lectionary, which is this cycle of readings that many, many churches use to, to work through Scripture. And if you follow the cycle, then in three years you'll have gone through the whole Bible once and the New Testament multiple times in, in a three-year cycle. And today, we're going to be looking at uh, Jesus and the Mount of Transfiguration. This is... Traditionally in the church calendar, this is what's known as Transfiguration Sunday, which is the last Sunday in the season of Epiphany. It's the last Sunday before you begin to move into that cycle of the Christian calendar that celebrates Easter. So after this, we'll be moving into Lent, which is kind of a season of looking at your own heart and preparing your own heart to, for, for Easter. And then after Easter, we'll move into the season after Easter to Pentecost. That's a whole section of the cycle. But this, that's Transfiguration Sunday, ends the season of Epiphany, which is that season of the revelation of Christ in many ways. And uh, this is indeed a, a revelation of Christ. So we're going to start in Mark chapter 9, starting in verse 2. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him and led them up a high mountain where they were all alone. There he was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses, who were talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what to say. They were so frightened. Then a cloud appeared and covered them, and a voice came from the cloud. This is my son who I love. Listen to him. Suddenly, when they looked around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. They kept the matter to themselves, discussing what rising from the dead meant. 
And they asked him, why do the teachers of the law say Elijah must come first? Jesus replied, to be sure, Elijah does come first and restores all things. Why then is it written that the Son of Man must suffer much and be rejected? But I tell you, Elijah has come, and they have done to him everything they wished, just as it was written about them. Like I said, I love mountains. Mountains are my happy space. And New Hampshire is is blessed. One of the things I love about living in New Hampshire is I can be in the mountains or I can be at the ocean in the same day. Much harder to do that back home in Texas. Now, there are mountains in Texas. Luckily, I happen to be from that part of the state that's far enough west. We have mountains. I Now, there are parts of Texas that are very flat. There are parts of Texas that are very far from any mountains, so so much so that there are many Texans that aren't aware that the state actually has mountains. But I remember when I first moved to New Hampshire, back almost in another century, not quite, but almost, and people people had a term uh, for people from somewhere else, and they'd be like, oh, you're a flatlander. And um, while that is a, a fair description of a large parts of Texas, um, I just thought, well, don't get ahead of yourselves now. I know you got the White Mountains and you got Mount Washington, but I got eight 8,000 foot mountains in my backyard. You don't have one in your whole state. <laughs> so be careful where you throw that Flatlander label around. It's, it's not like I'm from the Panhandle or something. But I love mountains. And this is a state where Mountains are, are central to recreation. We love to drive through them in the fall and see the colors. We love to walk in them, to hike in them. And mountain recreation is a big thing, but that wasn't always the case. As a matter of fact, for a lot of the history of the, the world, um, mountains were looked on with kind of a mixture of fear and awe. You didn't go to the mountains. That was, there were wild beasts up in the mountains where bandits were. It was not the place you would go for pleasure. As a matter of fact, it isn't until the Renaissance, there's an Italian poet named uh, Petrarch, and in 1336, he climbed a mountain just to see the view and wrote about it. And that was really the first modern experience of what we would think about as, as enjoying mountains, because before that, that's just where the wolves and bears were and the bandits. But they were seen as, as places of great power. And you'll see that a lot in the Bible. The mountains are kind of pictured, they're understood as a meeting place between heaven and earth. What the, what the Celtic cultures would call a thin place. That's why the temple in Jerusalem is on Mount Zion. That's why when Abraham was going to sacrifice Isaac, he went up a mountain. Mountains are where God is meeting with people. Indeed, when the people of God kind of got away from, from worshiping Yahweh strictly, one of the things they did is they started setting up shrines on all the hilltops to other gods. So whenever you come across a mountain in scripture, be aware that this is a spiritually charged place and would be seen as that more than just any other normal place. So when Jesus is taking his disciples and going up on the mountain, they're getting closer to heaven, not just geographically, but also 
in a spiritual sense. That's where you go. That's, and that's not just in the Bible. That's, ancient cultures all understood that. That's why the Babylonians built their big giant ziggurats. They were building artificial mountains. That's what the temple of, that's what the Tower of Babel is. It's man's attempt to build his own mountain to get close to God. So mountains are seen as kind of where you go to get close to God. So we have this story of Jesus taking his disciples and going up to see God. And one of the things that I love as as a new Christian and as a Christian who has been a Christian for now over half his life, I am frequently confused by scripture. I'm like, what is going on here? I take great pleasure in the fact that Jesus took his three closest disciples with him up the mountain and they're like, what's going on here? And Peter has this suggestion, oh, we'll build, we'll build three, three tabernacles for you, Moses and Elijah. And it says he said that because he didn't know what was going on and he was kind of scared. <laughs> I wonder how they knew. Were there name tags? I mean, how do you know that's Moses and Elijah? Could just be two old dudes, you know? And why is it Moses and Elijah? Why is that who who shows up on the mountain. And there's, like most things in the Bible, there are probably a plethora of reasons that it's Moses and Elijah. It's almost like a theological chimichanga with lots of flavors. But I think one of the reasons I'm going to look at is because there's a commonality with Moses and Elijah and what's going to happen here with Jesus. Now, one of the things that's going on is you could look at Moses. Moses is the lawgiver. It was through Moses that God gave the law to Israel. And Elijah would be representative of the greatest of the prophets. And we always refer to the older scripture as the law and the prophets. So that would be a way of summing up the previous message of God and saying the whole message of God is going to be testifying to Jesus. That's, that's certainly valid. And that might be one of the things that's going on here. But as I said, Moses and Elijah also have their own mountaintop experiences. And I think we're going to see that the experience that Jesus is going through here has a lot in common with what they went through. So we're going to turn back to the book of Exodus, chapter 33. And a little backstory. We always, it's always good to bring us up to the point what happened so far. And we believe that the whole biblical story is that story of God making a good creation that He intended to dwell in with us, that through our own choices, our own forefathers brought corruption to the whole scheme, and God worked to redeem that. And we always talk about how God chose a man named Abraham to begin his work of redemption through and from Abraham and his family, he made a nation. And one of the key components in that process of making a nation was bringing that family into Egypt where they multiplied from being a family into a nation. And then when the situation in Egypt became intolerable and they became oppressed, They called out to God, and he raised up Moses to be his vehicle to deliver them, and he brought them out of Egypt. 
And we have the story of Moses confronting Pharaoh of the plagues and finally Pharaoh relenting and saying, okay, I'll let your people go. And the nation of Israel coming out of Egypt, crossing the Red Sea, being led into the desert by Moses. And when they've been led into the desert, they come to the mountain of God. And this is where God is going to talk to them. He's going to lay down some kind of conditions of how their relationship is going to work. But no sooner does he deliver them and bring them out into the desert and begin to tell them how how this relationship is going to work, how he's going to relate to them, then as soon as, the, as soon as they get the chance, they begin going off the rails. Moses is up on a mountain, talking to God, receiving God's instruction. They are making an idol to worship. Now, the thing is, they weren't worshiping another god. They were using that idol to represent God, but it wasn't the way God told them to do things. They were, they were trying to do things the way they knew because in Egypt you had idols. You had idols everywhere. You had big people with the heads of cats and cranes and ravens and jackals. That's just, you know, you, you worship a god, you, you have an idol. And so that's, that's what they were trying to do. And they, they didn't necessarily think they were doing anything wrong, but they weren't listening to the god that had just brought them out. And they weren't accepting accountability for it, especially Moses' brother Aaron when Moses confronts Aaron, Aaron's like, ah, these people, they, they gave me a bunch of gold. I threw it in the fire, and this cow came out. Said, really? you got to believe me. I just, I just tossed it in. Cow, you know? I don't know how it happened. But so there's this rebellion, which immediately God says, okay, that's it. I'm, I'm not going to be with this people anymore. I'll, you know, Moses made intercession for them. I'm not going to destroy them but I'm not going to go with them. And Moses pleads with God. He says, how will anybody know we're your people if you don't go with us? And Moses speaks to God. Moses doesn't really change God's mind, but there is this notion that there's an interplay there. And God says, because, it, because you've done this, I will, I will do as you've said. I will go with you. So after all that discouragement and all that disappointment from Moses, Moses goes back up to the mountain to talk to God. And that's where we come in chapter 33, verse 12. Moses said to the Lord, you've been telling me, lead these people, but you've not let me know whom you will send with me. You have said, I know you by name and you have found favor with me. If you are pleased with me, teach me your ways so that I may know you and continue to find favor with you. Remember that this nation is your people. The Lord replied, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. Then Moses said to him, if your presence does not go with us, do not send us from here. How will anyone know that you are pleased with me and with your people unless you go with us? What else will distinguish me and your people from all the other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, I will do the very thing you have asked because I am pleased with you and I know you by name. Then Moses said, now show me your glory. And the Lord said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you, and I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But he said, you cannot see my face, for no one may see me and live. Then the Lord said, there is a place near me where you may stand on a rock. When my glory passes by, 
I will put you in a cleft in the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will remove my hand and you will see my back, but my face must not be seen. So Moses, in this time of discouragement, goes onto the mountain to talk to the Lord. And what does he, what does he ask for? To, to charge his own batteries, to give him strength for what he's been called to do? He says, just let me see your glory. And God is gracious and says, I, I will let you see my glory. But you're going to have to hide in this cleft in the rock, and you can see my back as I go by. But he does honor that request. And he lets Moses see his glory. And this kind of commissions Moses for the rest of his mission. This happens in the midst of his mission of bringing the people out. He's already worked wonders confronting Pharaoh. Raised his staff and the Red Sea parted. But he's, he's discouraged. And by way of encouragement, he goes up on this mountain and he meets God and God shows him his glory. Now let's scoot forward to 1 Kings. And we're going to look at chapter 19. Now, God has brought this people out of Egypt and he has made them into a nation and he brought them into the Holy Land he promised them. But once again, they almost immediately begin to go astray. Even the best of them, even the best king they have, David, does what's wrong in God's sight. And because of that, there's strife in his family, and that strife in his family becomes strife in the nation of, the nation of Israel. In fact, it splits the nation of Israel into two kingdoms, a southern remnant, which is the tribe of Judah and Benjamin and some pieces of the other tribes, and the northern kingdom of Israel. And you have good and bad kings in the southern kingdom of Judah, but Mostly, you have bad kings in the northern half of Israel. And they begin to worship other gods. They begin to worship the gods of the people that God drove out of there before he brought them in. And God had already told them, if you do what the people who are in this land did before I drove them out, then I'm going to drive you out too. So you have them turning away, worshiping false gods. And as God does, he comes up with plans of redemption. One of of the ways he tries to redeem the situation is he commissions a prophet to go to the northern nation of Israel. He commissions more than one, but Elijah is this prophet he sends to confront the false, the, the worshipers of the false gods. And Elijah challenges the prophets of Baal to a contest on top of a mountain Mount Carmel, not a candy. (laughs) I know, but so many people get that wrong. But anyway, so they they have basically a showdown where you have the prophets of Baal have their altar with their sacrifice. Moses has his altar with his sacrifice. And he says, we'll we'll both pray and we'll see which God answers. And the God that answers by fire, that's, that's the real God. And to make things even tougher, he pours water over his sacrifice. And the prophets of Baal start chanting and wailing and nothing happens. They start cutting themselves with knives and doing everything they know how to do and and nothing happens. And Elijah begins to taunt them. He's like, 
chant a little louder. And it doesn't quite come across in translation, but basically he tells him, why don't, why don't you sing a little bit louder? Maybe your God's in the bathroom and he can't hear you. Still, nothing happens. Elijah prays, fire comes down from heaven, consumes his sacrifice, and all the water. Everybody knows, oh, that's the real God. What do they do? They seize those false prophets of Baal and they put them to death with the sword. You would think this is a great moment of great victory for Elijah. But what happens? The queen, Jezebel, finds out about it and she threatens Elijah. So after having just come from this powerful moment of mystery, of ministry and, and confronting the false prophets, he immediately is plunged into this kind of situation of fear. And that's where we, we come to in chapter 19. Now Ahab, that's the king, told Jezebel everything Elijah had done and how he killed all the prophets with the sword. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, may the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I did not make your life like that of one of them. Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. When he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there. While he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness, he came to a broom bush and sat down under it, and he prayed that he might die. I have had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I am no better than my ancestors. Then he lay down under the bush and fell asleep. All at once, an angel touched him and said, Get up and eat. He looked around, and there by his head was some bread baked over hot coals and a jar of water. He ate and drank and then lay down again. The angel of the Lord came to him a second time and touched him and said, Get up and eat, for the journey is too much for you. So he got up and ate and drank. Strengthened by that food, he traveled 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. There he went into a cave and spent the night. And the word of the Lord came to him. What are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I'm the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. The Lord said, Go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. When Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face and went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. Then a voice said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I'm the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. The Lord said to him, Go back the way you came, and go to the desert of Damascus. When you get there, anoint Hazel king over Aram, anoint Jehu son of Nimshi king over Israel, and anoint Elisha son of Shaphat from Abel-Meholah to, su to succeed you as a prophet. Jehu will put to death any who escaped the sword of Hazel, and Elisha will put to death any who escaped the sword of Jehu. Yet I have reserved 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed down to Baal and whose mouths have not kissed him. 
So again, we have this man of God called, given a mission, and he has accomplished a big part of it. He started on the path, but he has become discouraged and weary, and he needs recharging. And I like that God, God lets him have a nap and feeds him. God is attentive to our needs. It is very, it's very easy sometimes to, to be overwhelmed with everything that you're facing and think, God, you just don't understand. And intellectually, and you're like, I know Jesus was fully human, but really, you just don't understand what I'm going through. But God does. He gave him rest, and he brought him to a mountain, and he let Elijah encounter him there. And all the awesome power was displayed, but it was that small voice where he met God. But he met God, and he went away recharged to fulfill the rest of his ministry. So that brings us back to Jesus and his disciples on the Mount of Transfiguration. But this is slightly different. What's been going on here? Jesus has already accomplished the first part of his ministry. He's been going around Galilee. He's been healing people. He's been casting out demons. He's been teaching. He's been revealing the kingdom of God coming among all these people. He's doing fine. He's not discouraged. But he has these disciples with him. And he asks the disciples at one point, he says, who do you say that I am? And he gets this great response from Peter. First, the disciples are saying, some say you're John the Baptist. And some say you're the prophet. Some say you're Elijah. And he says, what do, you, what, do you, what do you guys think? And Peter comes up with this great, he's like, you're the Messiah. Which sounds great, but he's probably still thinking of the Messiah in terms of this king who's going to come and kill the Romans and drive them out. And that's not what Jesus is about. And Jesus begins to teach them that he must die, at which point Peter, trying to be the great disciple, says, no, no, that's not going to happen. Not to you, Jesus. You are the, I've just told you, you're the Messiah. You kicked the Romans' butts. You're Arnold Schwarzenegger. Well, he doesn't know who Arnold Schwarzenegger is. And actually, by now, that may be a dated reference. I don't know, Jason Statham, somebody, you know. And Jesus has to tell him, what? They were expecting Chuck Norris. <laughs> End it all there. You can't make it any better than that. And Jesus says, no, you don't understand. You're speaking like Satan right now. So it's not Jesus here that really needs to see God's glory. It's his disciples. So he brings his disciples up on the mountain with him. And there they have another one of these mid-ministry experiences of God's glory. And they get this voice from heaven saying, this is my son. Listen to him. Again, kind of echoing the call at the baptism. I would give it a more modern translation by saying, listen, you boneheads, he's telling you something. <laughs> listen to what he's saying instead of what you think you already know. 
It's for them they get to see God's glory. Now, they, don't under, they still don't understand everything. As a matter of fact, when he, he says, don't tell anybody about this till the Son of Man has risen from the dead, they're going to sit around arguing, well, what does that mean, rise from the dead? Well, it means that he's going to die and he's going to rise up again. But that's not something that can enter into their worldview because that doesn't happen to Messiah. That's not what Messiahs do. So they still don't get it, but they've at least had this experience of, of God's glory that is going to hang with them. And when the time comes, it'll be something for them to draw upon to try and understand what happens at the resurrection. So when they come down from the mountain, they're encouraged and they're going to be empowered and Jesus is going to be empowered to do the final part of his ministry. And that final part of his ministry, as he's been saying all along, is to go to the cross. And on the cross, he is going to sum up and complete and finish all the work God was doing in his redemptive history through Moses, through Elijah, through the other prophets. Jesus is going to come down from the mountain and he is going to go to the cross and on the cross he's going to triumph over all the things that hold us back, that make us subject to death. The early church fathers talk about Jesus paying a ransom when he dies. And when they talk about it, what they mean is a ransom paid to death. That Jesus pays what we owe to the grave. But when they talk about it, it's kind of a trick because it is, it is a ransom that death never should have taken because when death accepts that ransom, death is not big enough to hold Jesus. And so it takes the ransom, but in doing so, it's swallowed up more than it could, chewed off more than it could swallow, and death is defeated. And we believe that is the key moment of the Christian story. We believe that is the hinge point of history that changes everything and opens the way for the kingdom of God, God to ultimately redeem and reconcile all things. <laughs>